Taking the show on the road and setting up at the offices of the Attorney General of British Columbia, Bird is joined on the hot mic by Minister David Eby. An NDP MLA, he was re-elected to the legislature in 2017 following a more than noteworthy defeat in 2013 of then-Premier Christy Clark by a margin of 785 votes in the riding of Vancouver Point Grey, a riding previously held by fellow Liberal Premier Gordon Campbell. Eby previously worked with the Pivot Legal Society in the downtown east side, which he then followed as the executive director of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association through 2012 before being elected into provincial politics. As the Attorney General of British Columbia, he recently worked to overhaul ICBC. He also oversaw the on-budget $57.1 million construction of a new centralized distribution center for liquor and cannabis. With the addition of the latter through national legalization, Burt speaks to the Attorney General about the challenges the province has faced with implementing a safe and efficient rollout of both licensed retailers and product to British Columbians, while also acknowledging the significant work that still needs to be done on both fronts. We go now to Burt, on location, in conversation. Welcome to License to Chill. I've got a very special guest today, the BC Attorney General, David Eby. David, welcome to License to Chill. Thanks for having me, Bert. Uh, David, I gotta admire you. I tell you, I take my hat off to you. I think about you just about every day, and I don't know how you do it. You're like an energizer bunny on a car battery, and that you are so busy at your work. You've got a young family and a new addition to your family, plus you're uh, also, so involved with uh, ICBC, uh, Lottery Corporation, which is all the casinos. You got the files that are like playing whack-a-mole, liquor and cannabis, where there's always issues popping up. Plus you got the running of the criminal justice system for the province of British Columbia. I don't know how you find time to do all that, but I understand you also do yoga. How does all this work for you? Does it, uh, do you ever sleep? There's lots going on, and uh, no, I know with the new baby at home, I don't sleep anymore. We've got rid of that, so it frees up a lot of time in the in the evenings. She's uh, she's two months old, so wow. yeah, every three hours. But I, you know, my wife is a rock star and uh, and is carrying a disproportionate uh, load, and and uh, we're making it work. It's uh, a lot of it is, um, I mean, it's challenging, it's interesting, and uh, and uh, the time flies, and and some of it doesn't even feel like work, uh, and so I enjoy it. So when you had the first meeting with the premier after you formed government and he called you in to say, I'm going to appoint you attorney general and I'm also going to give you all these other responsibilities, did you have that moment where you said, holy moly, how am I going to do all this? Um, I should have really had that moment. <laughs> I remember when the premier called and said, yeah, I'd like you to be attorney general and also, you know, if you do liquor and, uh, and uh, ICBC as well as as part of that and BC Lottery Corporation, I thought to myself, well, those are, you know, uh, I was the critic on liquor, so I had an idea of some of the things that I was hoping we'd be able to do. Um, and uh, when I, we were in opposition and attorney general, I thought would be the biggest part of the role around the justice system and every time someone sees government in these uh, sort of high profile court cases, uh, I really um, did not imagine that I'd be spending most of my time on car insurance and uh, and money laundering. Um, so that those were unexpected, unexpectedly large portfolios added to some already very large portfolios. So it, it ended up being more than I think even any of us expected, including the Premier. Is it fair to say that when you became the Attorney General on ICBC and on the casino file, you discover these time bombs in your end basket? Is that fair to say? Yes, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what happened. So, you know, before the election, there was no discussion about the fact that ICBC was going to lose a billion dollars. 
uh, in the fiscal year. In fact, there was this uh, concerted effort to hide it, booking savings from a report that hadn't been received, booking the sale of properties that hadn't been sold, booking the sale of the URL icbc.com. Uh, which hadn't been sold uh, for $10 million, just to hide the fact that ICBC was losing so much money. Uh, so it wasn't an election issue. And, uh, and so nobody really knew going into the election what was happening there. And then similarly on the casinos, uh, the, the secret report that outlined large uh, scale money laundering taking place in BC casinos that was done by a firm called MNP, provided the finance minister, had never been released. Um, the, certainly uh, none of the details about BC acting as a hub for international money laundering had been discussed publicly by the Liberals, even though it was uh, so notorious that when I first had my briefing with the regulator, they said, get ready, I think we're going to blow your mind and outline the whole thing for me. Uh, it was not a secret within government, but outside of government it was. Wow. Well, it really caught a lot of media attention, my attention, because I, I still have a hard time imagining somebody showing up in a casino with a duffel bag full of $20 bills. And um, the, the, they got away with that for so long. And uh, on the insurance side, I know I'm going to feel it when my car insurance comes up for renewal, but that is to try and get ICBC back on a stable financial footing. So we've made a bunch of changes to uh, how uh, car insurance works in the province. So if you have a more minor injury, um, there's a limit on something called a pain and suffering award and uh, some other reforms that allowed us to do a couple things. One is save about a billion dollars a year and the other is increase other benefits like your out-of-pocket expenses and uh, and for people who are catastrophically injured um, increase their benefits as well that hadn't been increased for about 20 years but rates are still too high and there's a lot of room for us to do more on that and so our work is continuing on that uh, one of the changes that we've made that is controversial right now is we've asked people who are higher risk drivers to pay more uh, that includes inexperienced drivers, and so disproportionately young people, as well as people who have multiple tickets, multiple at-fault collisions, because it costs a lot of money uh, to insure these drivers. And uh, inexperienced drivers are still pretty heavily subsidized, but uh, we are asking them to pay more, especially on collision and uh, third-party liability. So it, it gets like painful in a hurry when you start talking about car insurance, yeah. both because it doesn't, when you spend money on it, it doesn't feel like you're getting anything for it until you're actually in a collision. Uh, and uh, and also because it's really technical and uh, and kind of boring. Yeah, um, and I understand now if I have my car insurance, when I renew my car insurance, I have to list when I renew my insurance who might be driving my car. So for my, if I want to let an employee of my company borrow my car to go up to city hall to a meeting or whatever, that I have to declare who that person is when I when I renew my insurance. Yeah, people who live in your house or your employees, and the reason for that is previously if you loaned your car out to the employee and that person had a crash in your car, uh, that would go on your insurance record and not on the employee's record. And so that person would go off and have a clean driving record. And meanwhile, yours would be affected by uh, the insurance hit. And uh, British Columbians told us that they wanted uh, people's records to follow the driver, not the vehicle. Um, that made a lot more sense to them that people who had multiple collisions should be paying more, not the person who loaned out their car to someone who wasn't a great driver. Um, and so that's what we've tried to do with the system. Okay, so as an employer now, can I ask my employees and say, okay, uh, Christina, Stephanie, whoever works for me, uh, show me your driving record. I want to know what it is because if you're a high-risk driver, I don't want you driving my car because I don't want you out there risking it. Yeah, so when you go into your broker and you add on these drivers, they're going to be able to tell you, and obviously you're going to have to get consent from your employees, but if driving your vehicle is part of it, and, and they're going to tell you, look, this, this person, when I add them to your to your uh, car, your insurance is going to go up pretty dramatically because they have a pretty terrible 
driving record, and then you're going to make the decision of the three employees you can drive in your firm. The two with the good driving records are the ones who are going to drive your car, and the one with the bad driving record isn't. And that's good news for British Columbians, too, because you're making decisions that reduce the risk for everybody on the road when your car's being used out there. Okay. And so for taxi cab drivers and eventually Uber and rideshare drivers, they'll have to go through the same... Well, they, they must have to pay a lot of insurance. So um, for uh, rideshare, they're going to be on a per-kilometer uh, insurance product, as they mm -hmm. are in other provinces across Canada. And the insurance kicks in when you accept a ride on the rideshare app up until the point that you drop the person off. Uh, so people pay their regular car insurance just as if they were driving as a... Uh, civilian, not a, an employee or working for one of these companies. And then as soon as they turn on the app and accept a ride, then the additional insurance kicks in to cover them during the period that they're uh, using their vehicle to earn money. Okay. That makes sense to me. Um, I'd like to switch topics now to cannabis. We're one year into legalization of cannabis. How has it gone from your perspective so far being on the regulator side, in the government side, the one-year experience with cannabis? Is there things you would have done differently? What are your thoughts? Um, so I think we've been really successful at some things, and I think we've really been challenged by other things. So the things that we've been really successful in, uh, British Columbia was unique in Canada in that we had an election uh, within the period that a lot of other jurisdictions were standing up their systems for approving licenses and everything. And so That's we correct. were taking over government at a time when uh, other jurisdictions were well ahead of us. And so despite that, uh, we had licenses out the door within 14 days of the legalization date. Um, but with that said, we were starting well behind other provinces. And so we've been playing catch up this whole time. We've got 146 licenses now, but it took us a long time to get there. There were a bunch of people who paid uh, and there are still people who have paid for their application or waited for a long period for security and background checks, um, fit proper uh, especially. And uh, so we recognize that and, and we've made adjustments to the workflow to make it work better. Uh, and also, um, it's been a priority for the province as we transition, and we've always seen it as a transition from the illegal market to the legal market, that it wouldn't be as of the day of legalization, all the old stores would close and all the new ones would be legal and lining up to pay their taxes and all these kinds of things, that there would be a transition. And so uh, that's uh, where we are uh, in the transition. And it's um, we've dealt with, I think, a lot of the uh, challenges we had around the backlog. The other pieces and some of the frustration I have is that, and it's come with a decision that we made early on, which is um, municipalities have a huge say in uh, whether or not they're licensed stores. So we have a very big municipality, Surrey, not accepting uh, government stores. And it's, you know, I, we respect their ability to do it. It's important that they be able to make those decisions. Um, but at the same time, that means that the illegal market in Surrey continues. Um, and, and has a better foothold there than it would in other parts of the province. And so we continue to work with municipalities to, uh, to have those conversations about how we can um, get to a legal market. And uh, the other piece is enforcement is, um, is starting to ramp up. We have our com uh, community safe safety group that has been going around and introducing themselves to unlicensed vendors and saying, listen, you're going to need to be part of the legal process now. There's one other piece where I think... Um, uh, we can do better and where there's an opportunity for us is uh, BC has always been famous for cannabis and uh, it would be really sad if we lost that advantage because of the federal government's rules around uh, licensed growing uh, which means that you have to be basically a big company an incredibly well-financed operation in order to jump through all the bureaucratic hurdles that have yeah. been set out 
so I think that in phase two for us, whenever that comes, um, being able to support smaller growers in British Columbia, farm gate sales, and having BC growers uh, in a BC process um, uh, selling through, uh, through uh, uh, licensed stores is a really important thing, uh, especially when you look at what's happened in liquor and that, that transition um, that was so beneficial to craft breweries, craft distilleries, wineries. Um, the, the parallels are, are certainly there, but under the federal regime that we have right now, um, it's, it's too uh, bulky and bureaucratic and expensive for small producers to participate. And I don't think that, if it, if it was the intention, that's disappointing, but I don't actually think it was the intention. I think, yeah. you know, just people made a list of rules and, and yeah. they're expensive to comply with. I agree with you. I think it was a non-intended consequence, mm-hmm. but I would love to see a dialogue between government and the industry to try and get us back to having a boutique industry producing quality cannabis for uh, not only our consumption here, but also for export uh, across the country. Uh, with respect to the rolling out of cannabis, I must admit the biggest complaint we hear from people who have applied for a retail cannabis store license is the time delay. We have people who have been waiting for up to a year. Now, some of it is the fault of the applicants because they haven't provided all the information. Um, and we have had situations where we've had a, an existing liquor licensee, well qualified, apply for a liquor license. Uh, where the application to the branch was about half an inch high. And then we, for that same person, same corporate structure, but because of the requirements on cannabis, is that cannabis application was 15 inches high. And uh, because of the detailed analysis, I can understand why, but it just takes so long to get through the process. And of course, people have gone hard on the lease, they're paying rent. Some cases they've actually started building out the store. And then you've got to get through the municipal process, so anything you can do to reduce that. But yeah, I know your staff are terrific from my end, my perspective, and I think they're working hard, but it's just such a tough, difficult process to get through. It is. And, uh, and the multiplicity of agencies involved, the police, uh, the Solicitor General's office, my office, through the regulator, um, has not made it easy. And so uh, we have, I mean, I think we've, doubled our licenses in the last couple months uh, after we adjusted some workflow. And and there were requirements that we had that we realized, you know, weren't necessary. There was an approval in principle, and then you'd have to get a second inspection afterwards and these kinds of things that we've gotten rid of. And so um, it, has, uh, it has eased some of that process. But I think one of the things that is a delicate balance that we're trying to get is um, you have to have licensed stores in order to uh, achieve the goal of displacing the illegal market. And simultaneously, we didn't want the licensed stores to be operated by people involved with organized crime. So, you know, we wanted to have detailed background checks, but those take time, which meant that we didn't have as many licensed stores as we wanted. So trying to uh, balance those two um, priorities of uh, ease and speed of application with ensuring that organized crime wasn't involved so that there could be a legitimate and licensed marketplace um, has been challenging. And I think we've turned the corner on it. Um, but it, it did take much longer than any of us hoped for. Yeah. The one thing we hear from people who have gone through your process, have a legal licensed store, uh, and are legitimate, they're coming to us and saying, okay, I'm now legit. I've gone through the process. I have my retail cannabis store license. I've got local government approval. I've got a business license on my wall. When are they going to shut down the guy down the street who's mm-hmm. still operating an illegal store? In some cases, those stores that are illegal have an online uh, ordering system. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the one thing we hear about is the, uh, with the wanting to crack down on black markets. Indeed, I even hear of uh, some stores on First Nations land where they have a drive-through cannabis store out near Enby, Enderby, and they've got signs for it, uh, promoting drive-through cannabis store. And we hear those sort of things, and I think that's only going to increase as you get more and more uh, uh, approved proper stores through the system. Yeah, I think that's one of the pieces um, that uh, that is has been in the period that we uh, were taking such a long time to issue licenses. It was obviously challenging to go out and shut down all the stores without licenses because it was so difficult to get a license. But now that we're in a period where we're uh, we've transitioned into uh, yeah, I mean, like there's 150 licenses across the province. There's seven government stores. There's the online store. Uh, the Solicitor General's office is working with the community safety folks to um, on that discussion of when do we start to uh, to actually shut down the Ill- illegal stores that are operating and yeah. not participating in a licensing process. Yeah. Is there any discussion going on between the government with the municipalities that we call the red municipalities, like uh, you mentioned Surrey or Richmond, to get them to going to uh, green? We 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 evaluate municipalities in terms of cannabis as either being green like Vancouver and the city of North Vancouver district of North Vancouver Port Coquitlam where you can apply for a cannabis store in their municipalities the yellow ones are places like Coquitlam where they're thinking of it they're looking at it, they're trying to figure out how to roll it out and then the red ones are the hard nose these are like Surrey's and and uh, Richmond is there any dialogue to try and get those going uh, looking at it because of the black market concern well, you know, I think um, when we look at Richmond's an interesting example because the distribution center for cannabis is in Richmond, and uh, and Richmond Council supported that those jobs and that opportunity to be in their city, um, and so there's there's definitely room to have the conversation with with cities, and we support their autonomy and being able to decide whether or not they want to be part of uh, the legal market. Um, and the message that I would have for any of those mayors and councillors is is quite simple: that in the the demand doesn't disappear um, just because you don't have legal stores in your community. What it means is that someone else is fulfilling that demand and it's through the illegal market. And that means, and typically it's not just cannabis, right? It's cannabis, it's cocaine, it's other harder drugs, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's organized crime. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and so what comes with organized crime, we know money laundering, violence, fighting over turf, all these terrible things. And so why, um, uh, this program was put in place by the federal government was to, to try to displace some of that. So it'll be interesting to see over time uh, as uh, the project rolls out and as these cities get a chance to visit other communities and see how the cannabis stores are working. Um, if they're not working well, then maybe they'll say we made the right decision. Or if they look and they say, okay, these are well run, they're government regulated, uh, they're not selling to kids, people know what the product is, they're getting good health advice about using it and minimizing harm, then um, we support that. And that's kind of what I hope is that uh, we're running it so well that um, that these cities look at it and say this is a good direction for us to, to displace the organized crime element. Yeah, and I think that's important because I, I know people, I've got friends that still do what I call the $100 on the barbecue, where then they'll put an envelope on the barbecue on a morning and that night, night the $100 is gone off the patio and there's a little bag there because the cannabis they've been getting for years from somebody in that industry works for them, uh, whether it be an illness uh, like Crohn's disease or something right. else. And the only way you get rid of that is if you have municipalities that are open to having retail cannabis stores. I want to switch gears now from cannabis to liquor. Mm-hmm. Um, free trade. 
uh, and the wine sales and grocery stores, mm -hmm. uh, which is an interesting issue. I think the previous government created the most bizarre model uh, by putting wine into some select grocery stores, uh, BC wine, and now the free under the North American New Free Trade Agreement, uh, and which came about as a result of a challenge by the Obama administration of the. Um, uh, of the uh, wine and grocery store model of the previous Liberal government uh, came down and said import products have to go in. Is there any sense of what's going to happen with free trade? Will, it, will we be able to go into a grocery store and buy California wine or Chilean wine or Australian wine? So um, it's my understanding. So a couple things happened. Uh, we had the trade challenge from the United States. We had uh, challenges from Australia and the European Union. Uh, just really clearly, the structure set up by the previous government not compliant with international trade rules that we only sell BC wine in grocery stores. And all those jurisdictions recognize that grocery stores are a major channel for selling wine. And, and while they were able to, to tolerate BC-only freestanding VQA stores as sort of promotion, and there are not too many, and it's not a priority, as soon as they went into the grocery stores, I think that was... Um, that was the end of the line for them. And so they brought these challenges. Uh, it became an issue in the NAFTA renegotiations. It became an issue in terms of formal challenges being launched. Uh, and the, uh, so we have changed the rules, and you are allowed to now sell in grocery stores uh, international wine, uh, as well as any Canadian wine that you want. Uh, in uh, because it also violated domestic trade rules, um, and uh, and so that that is in place right now. I understand that Loblaws is currently putting in place the uh, uh, infrastructure that they need to stock and and sell international wines for their stores. And I don't know about other stores, Save on Foods and so on, what their plans are. Um, but they are legally allowed to sell any wine that they want, or but cider, sake, mead. Yeah, but can they ch voluntarily or just choose just to restrict it to BC wines, or is that going to risk it? Yeah, they could theoretically do that. I, I think it's probably unlikely, but they could choose to just sell, uh, if they wanted to, only wine from one region, including British Columbia. Okay, just like a pub can choose to sell certain wines or beers. Yeah, yeah, or we restaurants on the Scottish scotch or whatever. It's yeah. just, it doesn't happen too often, and I... Um, I don't know. I, d I don't know what uh, all of the store's plans are, but I do know specifically that Loblaws is, is uh, preparing. Moving forward for yeah. that. Um, now, I've got to commend you. Uh, you, after becoming the Attorney General Minister responsible for liquor, appointed Mark Hicken uh, to do a liquor policy review, mm -hmm. and he did a phenomenal job put together all the stakeholders within the industry, whether it be the Wine Institute, uh, Restaurant Association, Pub Association, Private Liquor Store Association, craft breweries, uh, distilleries, and everybody created and came up with, I think it was 23 recommendations or something like that to government to implement. And two of those recommendations are very significant for the industry. One is the ability for the industry to um, get a licensee discount. So when they purchase their liquor, there'll be a discount uh, that they would like a wholesale price that they would pay so hopefully that be passed on to the consumer in a restaurant on the wine list or uh, drink prices and the second recommendation was licensee licensee sales so if I'm a licensee like owning a restaurant I can go down the street to my local private liquor store and I could buy uh, product for my store I won't have to go through the LDB system and um, I just wonder if you can comment where that process is at and uh, what sort of timelines we have uh, on that development. Yeah, I imagine most of your listeners are familiar with the, with the process that we introduced. I imagine you have a lot of folks in the industry who listen, and, um, but just in case for those who don't, um, the idea was uh, we could set out a roadmap for where we spend our energy. Government is, people don't think of it, but government is finite in terms of the number of 
things it can do. And so what priorities um, did the industry uh, think we should focus on? Um, and the reason why we did that is because when I was in opposition, I saw a bunch of changes come through that industry wasn't really involved in, uh, to my understanding, the way that they could have been. Uh, and some had really unintended consequences. Um, and so the process was really good. The recommendations were really good. The, the really big pieces uh, are hospitality um, pricing, uh, licensee to licensee sales, uh, and distribution, I think, are the, the big three um, that, that certainly are front of mind for me in the conversation. On, I'll start with the last one first. So on distribution, uh, we, uh, the recommendation was to have a third party come in and do a review of how distribution is done in the province around, especially they're called spec products, but these are sort of less common uh, products, wines, scotches, liqueurs uh, that aren't sold in large quantities, and uh, the LDB does distribute them, but they come from third-party private warehouses like Container World, um, and uh, they have to go from Container World to the LDB warehouse and then be received, unpacked, uh, and then packaged again into a store package that then is sent to the store, and that caused a huge amount of frustration to the uh, restaurants and the private stores that were ordering these products from the agents because they had no ability to see, when, once the product left the, the agent warehouse, uh, they couldn't see where it was. Is it at the distribution center? Has it been unpacked? Has it been packed in the store pallet? When are they gonna receive it? It looks like they should be able to receive it. It's not showing up. And it was really hard, is really hard for uh, these folks to do business and to plan their menus and to do all the things, to plan their stock for their stores and that kind of thing. Uh, and for the agents, you know, you sign some uh, product that you're excited about and you want to get it out on the shelves and get it to consumers and you can't. So we had uh, a third-party business firm go and do an analysis for us. I've received the report. It's got really good recommendations in it for us to improve the process. And I think that we're going to be able to do some good things on that. Uh, we're preparing the report right now for a public release. It's got a bunch of confidential business information from uh, some of the private uh, warehouses and some from, from some of the... Uh, from the LDB uh, and others, and so we want to make sure that it's okay to publicly release it uh, as much as we can so that people can see what's being recommended to us. And I think we're going to be able to make some good improvements on distribution. Um, the uh, Last year at this time, I think LDB's fill rate in the new warehouse was in the 70s, 75%, something like that. We're in the high 90s now, which is good. Um, the, the, the valley of death of the new warehouse is... Uh, uh, we're in a much better place now uh, because LDB had, was operating two warehouses at the same time and they were hiring and setting up the new warehouse. The fill rate was abysmal and it's much better now. Um, but still there's lots of room for improvement, including on delivery times. So that's, that's really exciting that's, um, and, and work has been happening on that. On hospitality pricing, uh, we've brought together the same, uh, many of the same folks uh, around the table on BTAP to talk about um, uh, hospitality pricing and where we can find shared cost efficiencies to pay for. Essentially, when you're talking about selling a product to a restaurant uh, or to a bar at a lower price, um, it means that the government is taking in less tax dollars. Uh, so that costs money. It means money for schools, hospitals, public services, whatever. Um, and uh, that, that isn't received because you're reducing the amount of money that government receives. So is there a way that we can find cost efficiencies that people aren't too fussed about uh, and be able to deliver a lower hospitality price. And the good news is I think uh, we may be able to get to that. So that conversation is taking place and I hope that we're able to uh, get there because government has made a commitment around 
um, delivering a, a hospitality price to industry. I've said many times this is something that I want to do and that uh, it's a priority for me as minister to deliver that um, in this mandate of government. And so uh, I'm working closely with industry to get there and I think we're going to be able to get there and I have, uh, I have great hope in that process that we're going to be able to get there. So that's exciting, but also um, the, the discussions are... We can't talk about them really yet. They're, yeah, they're, happening, right. they're happening behind closed doors. Yeah. It's probably well, the best way to describe treasury, it. If all is treasury board and, and, and the, finance the, and all that ultimately stuff. Ultimately, anything that, that is proposed or agreed to has to be approved by my colleagues in cabinet and treasury yeah. board. That's right. Uh, and then the um, uh, last episode we talked about hospitality price, uh, distribution, um, and, and uh, licensee, licensee to licensee. licensee. So one of the things that uh, is critical for licensee to licensee sales is uh, a sufficiently because um, currently hospitality has to buy uh, from public stores. They're not allowed to buy from private stores. That's what licensee to licensee sales proposes is that hospitality um, could buy, bars and restaurants could buy from anybody, from a public store or from a private store or whatever. Uh, the big gap for all governments, wh whatever their ideology, uh, has been the fact that uh, if the restaurateur was buying from a private store instead of from the government store, that profit margin on the product, uh, and they pay full retail price, uh, would disappear potentially. Yeah. Um, and so that the, the cost of that is quite significant and it's very closely tied to the discussion around hospitality price. If hospitality price is lower and closer to wholesale, the more uh, doable licensee to licensee is. Um, we'll have to see how the, the hospitality price conversation goes because it get, if it gets right down to wholesale, then there's no financial cost to government um, in terms of having uh, licensees purchasing from other licensees. Um, and if it's if it's not if it's somewhere in between, then we're going to have to figure out uh, how much government can afford in terms of uh, lost revenue. Yeah, and from a personal perspective, I remember several years ago um, we were having a Moscow an event around the Olympics, and it was a Winter Olympics, and we want to serve Moscow mules, which calls for cucumber vodka. So I went to a government liquor store just so I could walk in and find cucumber vodka on the shelf. No, and I was told go to a private liquor store down in Vancouver because they knew that they sold cucumber vodka yeah. they have it so if i'm a licensee and i want a particular product sometimes the government doesn't carry it and if the government stores don't carry it then they can order it in but it takes time yes. as opposed to just going down and sometimes you want to buy just one or two bottles of something as opposed to a couple of cases and uh, um, I, for me, that would be huge for the industry if we had that ability to be able to do that. But I recognize there are budgetary implications and I have to walk it through because, you know, dollars are tough to find these days in government. Sure. I mean, and, and that's the thing about all of these uh, policies we're talking about short of distribution is, um, and the reason why, you know, people say, oh, well, it's because of the union or it's because of this or that. Well, the, real, the reality is it's government revenue. Governments that were for 16 years, I mean, the B.C. Liberals are not, uh, not known as particularly friendly to the B.C. Government Employees Union, uh, and yet they had public distribution and required restaurants to buy from only public stores because they knew the revenue hit was significant. Um, so we're trying to work it out, how we might be able to get there. And I, I, I feel good about the conversations that are happening. I'm hopeful. Now, do you see the same challenges on distribution coming on, on liquor distribution coming up in, in distribution of cannabis from the uh, cannabis distribution branch to the private stores, particularly now we've got edibles coming on stream? Yeah, so we've been, um, uh, fortunately, uh, the, the state of play, as I understand it right now, is that stores are getting the products that they're ordering, that the, they're getting it in a timely way, that uh, the ramp up has been okay with the stores coming online. Um, 
at least uh, I haven't been contacted with any complaints, and I certainly was inundated with complaints when the LDB was doing about 75% fills. So, um, so I haven't seen that on the cannabis side, um, which is good news. And uh, I think things have been going well on that side. The concerns that I've heard have more been around the quality of the product no. um, that's available and, uh, and ensuring that it matches the quality of the product that's on the illicit market and also has the benefits of being tested and people know what's in it in terms of pesticides, molds, and everything else. So um, that is, uh, that's the opportunity for us to have significant improvement. And on edibles, uh, everything's on schedule for that. Uh, uh, following uh, the official uh, legalization date, people have to give Health Canada 60 days notice of their intent to sell an edible product, so it'll be 60 days from uh, the legalization date at a minimum for Health Canada to sign off on the various uh, edible products that'll be stocked. Um, but uh, LDB has done a, an RFI and they've got a whole bunch of, uh, I think there are 40 plus um, producers of these products that have uh, have indicated their interest in supplying the LDB. So uh, British Columbians will have a wide variety of products to choose from. Yeah, and I think edibles will be huge because a lot of people don't want to vape. They don't want to inhale. Yeah, if you're it, in rental housing or you're in a condo or something, you know, you don't want your neighbors smelling yeah. smoke coming out from under your door, whatever the issue is, yeah. right? And and so, yeah, I think I think it will be a big deal. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it all rolls out. Yeah. Now, cannabis-infused uh, products being uh, retailed in restaurants, um, or the other one that we hear about is cannabis-infused liquor products. Uh, I, where do you see that going? Or uh, because I, my understanding is, if you had a cannabis-infused liquor product, let's say a beer infused with or a, a cider infused with cannabis, that well, first of all, where are you going to sell it? You can't sell it in a liquor store because it's got cannabis in it. You can't sell it in a cannabis store because it's got liquor in it. Uh, where do you see that feel going or not going? Or is that on your radar screen yet? Yeah, I don't think the feds uh, allow uh, cannabis uh, liquor products at all in Canada currently. Um, and uh, but the I, and uh, I understand why. I mean, there have been big problems with uh, with caffeine, alcohol drinks, um, and uh, and so everyone gets a little leery with people uh, mixing drugs even before the consumer takes them. Um, and uh, and so I understand the concern. What's what's interesting and and where the sort of next phases I think of legalization are, are things like. Um, cooking with cannabis, um, cannabis restaurants you were describing, uh, and, uh, and bakeries and that kind of thing. And then also um, uh, sort of tasting events like you would have with uh, liquor or yeah. with wine or, or beer. Um, and, uh, and those aren't currently um, permitted. And so um, you can see, I mean, the, the easiest path to see in terms of where the federal government is going, uh, assuming a continuation of the policy, uh, is to look at the liquor sphere and 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 uh, and certainly from our perspective, uh, that's the best place to look because our conversations with the feds about, as I said, farm gate sales and yeah. small growers and so on, um, are really based on the experience in the alcohol side of the industry. Yeah, we've been doing quite a bit of work with licensees who hold liquor licenses to recognize this the um, obvious situation we're up. A patron could be consuming cannabis outside the establishment and then come in or they're in the establishment they go out and smoke and then come back in and they're carrying on drinking a beer or the one scenario we have is on a golf course playing surface it's licensed so people can have a beer while they're playing golf but they've also can 
because it's outdoors, they can also reach into the golf bag, pull out a cannabis and smoke it, eventually a, 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 an edible. And then, so what do you got at the end of that with the person and watching for signs of impairment, watching for signs of intoxication? Um, has there been any uptick in terms of roadside checks or police stops or anything like that that you're aware of in terms of now that cannabis has been around for a year? Um, so police uh, have increased their number of drug recognition trained police as a formal training program that they go through to recognize signs of intoxication uh, in people who are using vehicles. And the reason why they've been doing that is there's still only one uh, instrument that's licensed for use in Canada by the federal government for detecting uh, uh, whether or not a person is impaired by cannabis. Um, some police forces haven't ordered that machine because of concerns about uh, how it works and whether it's sufficiently accurate and whether it's sufficiently reliable. Um, the uh, Solicitor General has said that he's very hopeful in his conversation with the feds that there'll be uh, new technology uh, approved by them for detecting cannabis impairment. But right now it is really difficult that there's not a breathalyzer-like device um, that can adequately determine whether someone in the moment is uh, impaired by cannabis or not. I think that um, that challenge of identifying that is a serious one and, uh, and why the police are needing extra training to be able to identify it. Hmm. Well, listen, I've got to thank, I've got to wrap this up because you've been uh, very generous with your time this afternoon and very much appreciate you being on our uh, License to Chill show and um, keep up the good work and uh, I hope, to, Thanks, hope you'll come back. Thanks for your interest. Yeah, I hope so too. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. You've been listening to License to Chill with your host, Bert Hick. This podcast is recorded live at Studio 710 in downtown Vancouver and produced by Jade Maple. For more information, check out risingtideconsultants.ca.